Good morning, church. Thank y'all. Uh, my name is Bo Riles, and I get the privilege of serving here as the sending pastor. And I've been really excited about this series since Billy told me um, we were going to do it. And today, um, I'd like to look back to, to last week. And like Billy said earlier, uh, really what we've seen over the past year is that it's proven to be challenging for, for many believers and many churches. We've seen people disengage in their relationship with Jesus. We've seen people lay the mission of Christ to the side. Uh, we've seen people fall out of community and into isolation. Uh, and we've just basically seen the true health, like the, the real deep down health of believers kind of come to light. And maybe you're in here today and you'd say, hey, look, that's me. Like I've, I've really struggled this year. Like the things that are going on in the world have really pulled my focus and my attention away from Christ. Or maybe you're in here and you'd say, hey, look, I, I feel like I never disengaged. You know, like I, I kept rocking right through it all. Well, I'm, I'm so happy for you in that, but um, it's our hope with this series that for either one of those two people, you know, we would call you to engage on a deeper level in an experience with Christ that, that you've never seen before. Uh, now, last week, Billy set up the series calling us to essentially fix our eyes on Jesus. Well, today I want to talk about a key element um, in doing that. We want to talk about community, right? We're going to go to God's Word and talk about community. This is one of our four cultures. We believe the Bible has a lot to say about it, therefore, so do we. Um, and as we're, talking to, or as we're talking to you guys and calling you to re-engage with Jesus, I want you to understand that to be engaged with Jesus is to be engaged with his people. You can't separate Christ from his church. Um, we were called to be engaged with one another. Now, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47 today. But what I'd like to do is I, I got a, a lot to say uh, today. So I want to go ahead and give you my outline and maybe it'll help you guys follow along and keep up with me. So just before Acts chapter 2, verse 42, um, the Holy Spirit comes down and, and falls on the apostles at Pentecost. They began to speak in tongues. And um, there were a few that wanted to mock these believers, right? There were a few that said, hey, like they're speaking gibberish over here. They must be drunk. And then Peter comes out and says, look, it's nine o'clock in the morning. No one's drunk. But, but I do want to tell you what's going on here. And Peter is given an opportunity to preach a, a sermon to, to this large group of people. Um, and he basically tells them, look, like you've killed the Messiah. You know, you, he, he starts laying out the gospel. And when he does, it says they were cut to the heart. And then they ask Peter, they say, well, what should we do? And Peter says, put your faith in Christ, essentially. You need to repent. You need to be baptized. And when he does, it, the Bible says that 3,000 people were added to their number that day. Well, guys, this is essentially like the first glimpse we get into the early church. This is like the formation of the early church. This is where they formed community after those people were saved. And Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, is kind of taking a step back at this moment and saying, hey, like these are the characteristics I saw produced in those people. Like whenever they were, they got saved, they formed community. Um, in that, it produced these characteristics. And that's where we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Uh, verse 42 today, but there's three specific things I want you to see as we talk about these characteristics. Um, you know, we're, we're calling you guys to re-engage in community. Well, we need to understand what gospel community looks like. Um, I want you to understand how to re-engage in it. And the first thing we see is they were devoted. And the second thing is they were mission-driven. And three, they were a unified family. All right, so I want to pray, and then we'll jump into verse 42. Uh, God, I, I pray you would meet us here this morning, and you would go ahead and soften and prepare our hearts uh, I truly believe that 
that life change can't happen apart from you doing something in us first. So as God, as I preach your, your message this morning, I just pray that we would receive it with glad and sincere hearts and that it would shape us and, and help us re-engage in community with other believers, God, for the sake of your name being magnified. So God, be with us. We thank you in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, Acts chapter two, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, that text is pretty self-explanatory. I mean, there's like not, there's no hidden truths everywhere that like needs explaining. It's pretty simple. So our first point is that they were devoted, right? Like when we look at true gospel-centered community, they were devoted. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer, all right? These are what we call spiritual disciplines, like these four things. But I want to go ahead up front and tell you guys, these people were saved before verse 42, okay? So the fact that they were devoted to prayer and God's word and all these other things, that's not what saved them. So as we talk through these, don't hear me look at you and tell you, hey, you need to be more committed to these so you can be a Christian. Like, that's not what I'm telling you. They got saved before verse 42, and it produced this devotion in them, all right? We need to understand where to place those two things. But the Greek word that they use for devoted or that Luke uses for devoted is proskartereo, and it means to be earnest towards, to persevere, to be constantly diligent, and basically to adhere to as closely as a slave. And I, I tell you that because whenever we think of like, yeah, they devoted themselves to this, we kind of get a surface level feeling in it, or at least I do, um, but when Luke writes, the word that he's using is, is very, very like personal. It's very, very like serious, okay? So they, they, Luke's describing a community that made these four things like the most important part of their daily routines. It was the foundation of who they were. They developed real rhythms of living together in Jesus and for Jesus. All right, so let's look at the first one. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the word of God, all right? That's God's word. So we have the New Testament. This early church in Acts 2.42 didn't have the New Testament yet. So they went to the, the next best thing, right? They went to the apostles. But while were the apostles the next best thing? So they, they had no formal teaching training. These weren't special men. Um, they weren't religious leaders. They were fishermen, tax collectors, and, and ordinary citizens. But these new believers could tell by the things that they said, the things that they had done, the things that they had seen, that they came in the authority and the power of Jesus Christ, Right? They, they brought the word of God with them. They were the ones that walked with Jesus. They had the word of God. So the apostles' teaching is their version of our Bible. Now, with that being said, God's, God's word was the foundation of their community. God's word was, was the purpose. It was the overall theme of them coming together. Now, I don't think it's an accident Luke listed this first. Um, they didn't come together and let sports or hunting and fishing, or did you hear about so-and-so, be the basis of their time together, right? This didn't eat up all of their time as they gathered together as a community. And the point that I'm making with that is, is the, the primary theme of community was them growing in their understanding of God's word, not gossip, 
not you know, selfish things that we want to talk about. And uh, for when I think about this, for a lot of small groups or connect groups, as we call them, guys, we've missed this. And like, I'm not talking at you because I'm a connect group leader and I'm just as guilty of this as you are, right? I can get super excited about something that's going on in my life and before I know it, I've eaten up half of our meeting time talking about myself and talking about the things that I want. And next thing you know, I've robbed everyone in the room of the growth that God had for them, right? So we gotta make the central theme of our reason for gathering God's word. God's word. Acts 2.42 tells me that whenever I, I, I build a foundation like as far as community on anything other than God's word, whenever I'm more worried about talking about my personal concerns and my personal desires and my personal feelings, that my devotions split. My devotions split. God's word has to be central for us to be devoted to gospel community. Just think about how many times we've, we've been together with other believers or we've been in connect group or we come to church and like not once talk about the word of God. It's crazy to believe, right? But I've been in groups before where, where we just we come together and we talk about everything but the word and what it means in our life, how it's shaping us. Um, and, and listen, it's not just in small groups, okay? It's not just in small groups. If you aren't devoted to the word of God in your personal time, you will not be devoted to the word of God in your communal time, okay? I mean, when, when I think about this, I can't bring to community, community what I don't have personally, all right? So when I come together with, with you guys, there's, there's no switch, there's no connect group switch I can flip on on Thursday night to come to group and then turn it back off when I leave. Like I, There's no way I'm gonna care about the word of God when I'm together with all of you if I don't care about it in my own life. So if, I, this, this is maybe a little rude, my wife's gonna be upset, but like if, if trash is all you're consuming during the week, like if you just soak yourself in things like the Bachelorette all week long and you're not devoted to the word of God, Trash is what you're bringing to group, okay? Blake Hardeman says, when you put trash in a trash truck, it don't spit gold out the back. It's still trash, all right? And that's what happens. Seriously, that's what happens. God's word has got to be central for us to, to walk through these things together. Now, you know what I'm talking about, too. Everybody's got at least a few in their small group. Like they don't participate. They, they always have some drama. And I see some of you nodding your head. So listen, if the person beside you done that, you know they're one of them, okay? Stay away from them. But I'm just kidding. Um, honestly, that's what happens when we aren't devoted to God the rest of the week. So the idea of this being devoted means that whatever you're devoted to takes precedence over everything else. And it reminds me of a conversation that I had with a guy this past Thursday. You know, we were talking about the kids and how they, they have sports at least five days a week, all right? And if you have different age kids, they're all in different fields and different towns, and a parent's gotta go here and a parent's gotta go there. And, and listen, I get it, I, I do. I got three kids, I, I understand what it's like, but the point I'm making with this is, those are good things. Like, I want my kids to play sports. Like, I want them to enjoy that. But it reminds me of all of the good things that we continue to heap on our plate, and it creates a big problem. Like, it, the problem it creates is that we have no margin in our schedules, none. So you keep piling this stuff on, good things, like your kids participating in sports, to the point that you can't make time for God because you don't have none. You can't get up at 6 a.m. and read your Bible because you were up till midnight last night doing the thing you wanted to do or doing the things your kids wanted to do or any good thing, right? Like, it, guys, it's, it's a problem if we can't create some margin in our life to be devoted to the Word of God. It's, it's a problem. It's a problem. The believers in Acts 2.42 would tell you, look, like if they, were, if they were here today and they could see how people maybe aren't devoted to the word of God, they would look at you and say, what in the world is wrong with you? 
Do you not realize that you should not take the word of God for granted? They couldn't just open a Bible in their homes whenever they chose to. Before the late 15th century, like you would have to travel to someone else's home who had scripture, and then you'd have to study it together there, and then you'd have to leave, right? Guys, we have access to the word of God in our homes, on our phones, everywhere. There's countries out there right now that still don't have a Bible in their language. So even if they got saved by some miracle and wanted to, to study and be devoted to the word of God, they couldn't because they don't have it in their language. We, we, should, we should understand that maybe we, we take it for granted. Like It's a privilege for you to have access to God. We have to, to make it a priority. We have to become devoted to the word of God. So are you devoted to the word of God? Now, I'm gonna talk about the next thing that they were devoted to. And this one in number three will run hand in hand a little. Um, but fellowship. The second thing they were devoted to was fellowship. When you hear this word, especially if you grew up in church like me, you, you probably think of the fellowship hall or Tuesday night men's fellowship or some sort of activity where Christians hang out, right? And listen to me, like the, hanging out with other Christians is a part of what's, what Luke's talking about, but it's, it's not completely what he's talking about now. Like fellowship is not an event that you go to, okay? Luke's talking about doing life together. Fellowship is a lifestyle, not an event to attend. All right? Fellowship is a lifestyle, not a fellowship, not a, excuse me, not an activity to attend. The word that he uses is, is koinonia. So think of the word partnership. All right. Paul uses the same word in Philippians 1 whenever he prays. He says, I pray with joy because of your partnership, koinonia, in the gospel. The, the people that he's referring to have partnered their life with Paul's for something much bigger than just hanging out with other Christians. They've partnered with him in the gospel, in the work of God, in making Christ's name known, right? Think of it this way. This means we share or are partnered in something. Fellowship is sharing in the common life we all now have in Christ. It's a mutual bond that Christians have with Jesus that puts us in a deep, eternal relationship with one another. You don't just belong to Jesus whenever you're bought into this family. You belong to each other, right? Like that's fellowship to intimately and eternally belong to one another. Understand that we need each other and not just on Sundays, right? Like I don't just need you today. I don't just need you on my small group night, but in everyday life. It isn't about being together for a two-hour routine on Sunday, it's a, a week-long effort for us to keep each other in the faith and to be a, a winsome witness for Jesus, right? This is a week-long effort. Jesus exists in the everyday parts of our life, therefore, so should fellowship. So should fellowship. I, have your parents ever said, you keep hanging around that group, you're gonna be just like them? Like, my parents sure told me that more than once, okay? And I didn't believe it then, but I believe it now. I believe it now, it's true. Um, and, and with that idea in mind, this idea of fellowship and like being like who you hang around with, I wanna share a story with you guys from someone in our church, all right? A uh, dear friend of mine. I was at a point in my life where my main goal was to be successful and make lots of money. So I surrounded myself with successful and wealthy people. I listened to their conversations, I asked questions, I read all the top success books they recommended, I watched the keynote speeches by all the business leaders, and I did everything they did. I submerged myself in it, and I successfully became that. After many years of being that, I realized I had my priorities way out of whack. I was chasing things and storing up treasures that were only good here on this earth, 
And although I had always known the importance of a relationship with God, I felt empty spiritually. I wasn't leading my family well. I wasn't the example I wanted my wife and children to be. And I wanted to be more like Christ. I had a revelation. So I did what I know works. I submerged myself in that. I'm intentional about spending time around godly men. I read and study my Bible daily with my wife as well as other Christians. Excuse me. I watch online sermons. I spend time with God. I'm active in my church. I attended Heart and Soul, and I began serving alongside other Christians. I host, lead, and grow with a small group of extraordinary men each Wednesday. I now have a, a personal relationship with Christ, and I lead my family closer to him by the example I'm showing through my actions and recognizable faith. Guys, this is it. This is what I'm talking about. Like, this is proof that when you submerge yourself into fellowship, whether it be Christian fellowship or not, you become what you've submerged yourself in. And that's not all. As he submerged himself in this gospel community, th this person began to look more like Christ. Listen to me. This is important. The people God has called you to exist in fellowship with are his appointed means to shape you into the image of Christ. Okay? God uses the Holy Spirit working through other believers to come into your life and, and, and sanctify you into the image of Jesus, right? That's the whole point, but it only works if we're practicing fellowship the right way, okay? The only way that, that God's gonna shape us into the image of Christ is if we practice fellowship the right way. There's, there's no corner of your heart that God intended you to keep from your, your church family. If you bought into this religion thinking this was a personal situation between you and God, look, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. There's nothing personal about the Christian faith. This is a group project. This is a team effort. There are no places in your heart that you should be hiding from your Christian brothers and sisters because they're the ones God wants to use to clean your life up. That's a challenging thing to understand, but it's true. So listen to me. These are, these are just three things I think about whenever we, we want to do fellowship right. Well, one, we have to be present in each other's lives regularly, okay? Like we have to be there. We have to, to be together. We have to hang out with one another outside of this building, outside of a small group. Two, you have to be transparent with your lives when you're, when you're in those settings, right? If I'm struggling with something, I can't hide it and bury it and just think that it's gonna go away at some point. I've gotta be honest about it. I've gotta share it with my brothers and sisters, the people who care about me, the people who wanna see me shaped into the image of Christ. And then lastly, I've gotta be open to correction. So like if God's using fellowship with other believers to shape me into the image of Christ, if I'm not open to correction, boy, don't come at me sideways telling me I'm sinful. You know what I mean? Like, you, you better be open to correction because if other people see this sin in your life that you can't see because you're trapped in it, you've got to allow them to work on you. You've got to allow them to pinpoint the things you need to work on. Listen, the people of Acts chapter two were modeling this well. They were devoted to fellowship in two ways. There was a large gathering and there was a small gathering, okay? In the large gathering, it says um, day by day they attended the temple, right? This is where they would go to Solomon's portico. It was a, a large wall along the, the temple and basically you would get people together collectively in one big group like this. Think of our Sunday services and someone would teach. Someone would teach scripture and we would all study it together collectively as a body, all right? This is where one person has something to say, all right? But then they would go 
Let me keep reading. Breaking bread in their homes. This was where they would basically leave that large gathering. They would come together daily in each other's homes, right? They would talk about the word of God that we were studying collectively as a body. And they would share struggles. They would share the things that confused them, right? They would use each other's burdens to teach each other and all these things that they would do when they came together in their homes, right? So I told you the large gatherings where one person had something to say. The small gatherings where you have something to say, right? And it's not just you confessing your sins and things like that. That's all a part of it. But like God's using you to shape the other people you're in fellowship with. All right? That's, those are the, the two ways that we, we see our model played out. Those are the two things, the two ways that we see them practicing their fellowship. Um, which brings me to the third thing they were devoted to, the breaking of bread. So we just kind of hit on that a little bit. But some people think this refers to communion. And some people think that this simply refers to sharing a meal with folks. And I'll be honest with you, um, I'm, uh, right now I just want to speak on the fact that you could learn something from both of them, right? When we think of communion, communion is where we break the bread representing the body of Christ that was broken, where we drink the wine that represents the blood that was spilled for you. It's, it's to renew you with the gospel. It's to remind you what Christ accomplished on the cross, okay? So don't hear me say that you all need to go home and take communion every afternoon, what I want you to hear me say is that as we exist in community, one of the things the early church was doing was renewing each other with the gospel every day. All right? That's what I want you to hear me say. Maybe it's as simple as a phone call that says, hey man, I was thinking about you. Jesus loves you. You wanna know how I know? Because his body was torn for you and he spilled his blood for you. You specifically. I love you. Just wanted to tell you that, man. It's that simple. Existing in fellowship, breaking bread in our homes can be that. Now, if we're referring to sharing a meal together, I love this one because let me tell you something. There's no better way to bring people into an intimate place in your life than to take them into your dinner table, right? I think about uh, Billy and Kate when I first got saved. Like when I showed some interest in the faith, they brought us into their house. You know, we shared a, a meal with them and all of a sudden I got to see that the, the pastor was actually a really cool dude that I wanted to hang out with, not a guy on a stage just preaching all the time. I got to see that his kids are just as bad as mine or kid at that time. Uh, you know, like I got to watch them put Will to bed. Like that kind of stuff was intimate to me. Like that kind of stuff, like I never thought that I would do that, but I got to see what it really looked like to follow Christ. Not some dude up here yelling at you on Sunday telling you all these things you should do, but someone who in his everyday life, he and his wife are walking with Jesus and I get to see that and it, it makes sense to me and now I wanna know more. But none of that happens apart from me going in and sharing a meal uh, with, with Billy and Kate. But listen to me. As, sorry, as Chandler would say, here's the problem. We've got really tall privacy fences and really short dining room tables, okay? We've, we've just, in America, we've got this mentality that like everything's about us. We're consumed with ourselves. I don't wanna host people. I don't wanna clean up after them. I don't want them sitting over here all times of the night. Like this is about me, not them. Listen, I want so badly to see people reach for Jesus. I wanna challenge you with something. If, if they were breaking bread in their homes and this was something they were devoted to, listen, why don't you start picking out the people you wanna see know Jesus and bring them to your dinner table? Then you come talk to me a few months later and tell me what kind of change it's making, all right? I'm telling you, this is an intimate thing to share a meal with people. Bring them into your home. Bring them into your home. We need to fill our dinner table with the people we wanna see come to a relationship with Jesus. Now the fourth thing that they were devoted to are prayers. Prayer wasn't, wasn't their last resort. It was their first response. 
is our first response. We've all seen the cheesy movies where they're saying their vows or maybe they're having a, a, a conversation about making up after a fight or whatever, but it's like, you're the first person I wanna run to. You're the first person I wanna talk to. Not the church in Acts, right? Jesus was the first person they turned to with good news, with bad news, with any news. And when we pray, not just as an individual, but also in community, listen to me, things happen. Like this is, this is not a, a venting session, like where you get mad at work and you go out back and you just start shouting at the wall or something, like where nobody's listening but you get it off your chest. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is a one-on-one -on -one conversation between you and God, all right? He's listening. He's on the other end of the line. Anywhere in the book of Acts that you see big things happening, where you see like all these crazy transformations, people getting released from jail, like the bars opening and up, but they're still closed, like all this confusing stuff. Every time you see that, you also read a few verses or at least chapters later to where the church was praying. Like things happen. Look at uh, chapter four. Peter and John were arrested and they were taken in for questioning, right? And after they were questioned, they were actually released. So they go back, the first place they go is back to their community, back to their friends. And, uh, it says that when they heard this, they lifted their voices together in prayer. And the prayer looked a little like, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had finished, the place they were in was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed for boldness and the last verse of that says they continue to speak with boldness. God answers prayers, right? And this was not an I pray in the car on the way to work every morning kind of prayer, all right? Time out. There's nothing wrong with praying in your car on the way to work or anywhere for that matter. But listen to me, that is not a devotion to prayer. I'm glad you communicate with God. I'm glad you talk with God. But if you were truly devoted to prayer while you were driving down the road, there's a 100% chance that you had a wreck, your devotion cannot be split between two different things. Like the, the kind of devotion we're talking about here is like the way I devoted myself to my wife when I got married. Like we're talking about a real devotion. Like get alone, talk with God. When you're in community, tell, like if you're in small group, you tell the kids, they can go in the other room, you shut the door even if you gotta lock them in so you can pray to God for just a minute. All right, you have to, to be serious about this idea of devotion. Now, Let's recap real quick because I gotta get moving. Um, they were devoted to the word of God, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. These are the things of God and I don't think I need to explain and teach to you what these four things are. Let me tell you why. <laughs> the, the four things, like all of us probably participate in these four things at least in some form or fashion. The thing we need help with is the word devoted, okay? We, we know what those four things are, but to say that everyone in here is just completely devoted to those four things is probably an understatement. We need to understand what it looks like to make these a priority in our life. If you want your community to flourish, if you, if you want your community to just grow insanely, base it off of these four things. Base it off of these four things. Are you devoted to the things of God? Now, the second thing we see, the second characteristic that we see about the early church community is that they were mission-driven. They were mission-driven. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So if you know anything about the book of Acts, uh, you know these people were mission-driven. Their personal lives proved it, their gospel community proved it, and the people around them knew it. Listen to me, in 2,000 years, 
The Christian faith has, has grown from just a small group of men that hung out with Jesus to a world religion of over two billion people, okay? That doesn't happen unless Christians are living on mission. All right, this, this statistic here, um, it's estimated that the church hit roughly 30 million people by AD 350. Like, somebody was living on mission. Somebody was living on mission. So how can we be mission-driven inside of our forms of community? How can we be mission-driven? Well, the first thing we gotta understand is, A, there is a clear mission, all right? We have a mission. Like, we, we didn't get saved to ride this wave until the day we die. Like, we got saved so we could get to work. There is a mission for the church. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is what turns regular community into gospel community. Let me tell you something. If you take the mission out of community, we're nothing more than a country club with Jesus as our mascot. That's it. We have a clear mission. We have a clear mission. Billy says we were, we were rescued to join the rescue team. I, I love that. Um, a mission-driven community makes it their business to go out into the unbelieving world and make the name and work of Christ known so he can be worshiped as he deserves, right? I think it's safe to say that when Jesus said, or when the scripture said that, uh, and, and Jesus added to their number daily, um, those who were being saved, I don't think he meant he magically dropped them off at the doorstep of the church and said, hey, I'm, I'm adding this one to your body today. I think he, what he's trying to say is that people were living on mission, and they were living as missionaries right where they are. Like, for example, if we were the early church, like, you'd be walking out of those doors, and you would begin to look at yourself as a missionary in Tombs County, wherever you are. Listen to me. This is really important. I have, this has burdened my heart so bad this week. Exactly 2.2 miles from where we sit right now, there's a four-year-old girl that has never heard of who Jesus is, okay? Right now, there's a 12-year-old athlete that attends Avadea City School that has never heard the name of Jesus. Are you with me? There's a 16-year-old math student at Toombs County High School that does not know the name of Jesus, there's a young girl in foster care right now that will never have the love of Jesus manifested in her life. There's a 30-year-old dad somewhere in a business in Vidalia right now that will never know how to lead his family in Christ. Look at me. If we don't start living mission-driven lives. Do you hear me? You and I we collectively are God's response to the brokenness in those people's lives. Those are real people. Everything I just said to you, they're, they're, they're real people. And I promise you, there's somebody in this church from every one of those places I just mentioned. And I'm telling you right now, you are God's response to the brokenness in their lives. How many people could come to know Jesus if we went out of those doors, when we leave here, you went back to your job, you went back to your neighborhood, and you went back to the marginalized communities in Tombs County, and you begin to actually live out the gospel that we preach in here on Sunday? How many people could get saved? How many people could come to a relationship with Jesus? Which brings me to my second thing. For, for any of those people um, to buy into what you're saying, you have to have, be a good reputation. Acts 2.47 says, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Listen, two things come to my mind when I think about a reputation as a believer, okay? Because I know most of you are probably thinking, well, God's the only one I care about. I don't care what nobody else thinks. I hear you. I get it. I love to, to feel that way too. But the truth is, we need people to trust us, right? The first thing I, I think of is, um, I don't know where I was at, but the first thing that I think about is us making 
Christ known to, to an unbelieving world, right? We need unbelievers to trust what we're saying. And we represent Jesus to an onlooking world. The church is under a microscope. There's no question about that. We've been under the microscope for a long time. People are watching you. And listen to me, nobody likes to be judged, but we're one of the most judgmental groups of people on the planet. If I needed somebody to, to basically watch my house while I went on vacation, I'm not picking the guy five doors down that's been arrested for burglary 15 times. Like, I'm not doing it. He's got a bad reputation. I'm judging him based on his reputation. Um, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's the same way with, with the church. Like, If you don't have a good reputation, people aren't trusting you. Listen to me. I got just three little things I want to share with you. If you're building a relationship with someone and you're trying to share the gospel with somebody who has a different political view than you do, and then they look on your Facebook and all they see are the most nasty, hurtful, demeaning political remarks, do you think they care what you have to say? Because I assure you they do not. All right? if, you're, if you've got someone, a friend of yours that you've led to a small group, like they don't really trust Jesus yet, but they've come to the small group and you're telling them, hey, you know, I want you to open up. Like you can, you can share everything in here. But just before that, they hear you gossiping about everybody else's life. Do you think they're gonna open up in this small group? Because I assure you, they're not. If, if you're running around telling people, hey, listen, this gospel can bring you joy in Jesus like you've never experienced before. But then just a few minutes later, everything out of your mouth is grumbling. You hate everybody. You hate everything. Everybody's out to get you. Do you think they believe what you have to say about the gospel? They don't. We have to have a good reputation. So how do we craft a good reputation with people in this community? Well, the first thing I think of is you gotta make gospel decisions. You gotta make gospel decisions. Look at me. This is very profound. If the gospel, excuse me, if the Holy Spirit is stirring up in your heart saying don't do it, don't do it, okay? If, if your friends are trying to get you to go out and do something you don't think you should do, don't do it. Make gospel decisions. Be smart. The second thing is be consistent. Stay involved. Like you can't one and done someone and expect them to look at you as if you're their brother or their sister. Like you have to be present in their lives. You have to get to know these people. You have to continue to be present in their life. Um, I think of Vidaya Village. Like as I went out there and I was talking with everyone and I began building a relationship, I finally asked them like, hey, what do you think about the church? And they're like, well, I can tell you what, a lot of them have come. A lot of them have done some really cool things, but they sure didn't show up again. And it's like in my mind, I'm like, man, what a reputation like destroyer. We gotta be consistent. Lastly, we gotta be charitable, okay? We gotta be charitable. Not just money. I'm not talking about just your money. I'm talking about your time, your energy, your resources. We, we have to go into this community, find lost people, figure out what their needs are, figure out how we can meet them in the name of Jesus, right? Nothing says, I love you like generosity, especially not when it's in the name of Christ. Now, the last thing that I wanna talk about with a mission-driven community is an untamed zeal. Acts chapter four, verse 13 says this. Uh, and by, I, as y'all can tell, I've probably been accused of, of a little too much of this sometimes. Um, my zeal outruns my wisdom. But now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Listen to me. They were Common men, uneducated men. There was nothing special about them. But these people saw their boldness. They saw their zeal. They were astonished. They recognized that they had walked with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want people to look at me and say, man, that dude's been with Jesus. Like, he's got a zeal for Christ that I want. I need it in my life. That's, that's what I want, not for my sake, but for, for Christ's sake. 
for Christ's sake. Listen to me. The, the believers in the early church, they didn't walk around and, and, and drag their feet thinking, man, I guess I better get to work for Jesus today. Like, they knew what Christ had done for them, and it caused them to live with a passion. It caused them to wake up every morning with a zeal to see the name of Christ made known. The reason for the spread of Christianity is because the early church was eager to preach the gospel. They knew what was at stake. They knew what waited for people in eternity if they didn't go out and share the gospel message. They didn't go out and help people come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. They knew what waited on those people. And it made them live with urgency. It made them have an untamed zeal, right? I think about uh, Peter and John were so zealous, they were arrested. I think about Paul, who was eventually so zealous, he was beaten more than a punching bag at a gym. And I think about Stephen, who waited tables, but was so zealous for Christ, he busted into the Sanhedrin, and he preached the longest message in the New Testament and was killed for it. I want that kind of zeal, don't you? Like, when I think about what Christ has done for me, I think about how I used to treat my wife when I was trapped in sin. I think about how I used to treat my kids. I think about the things that I used to do with my own life until Jesus grabbed me up from the pits of hell and yanked me out, and now I see the beauty and the joy of the life he's given me today, and I can't help but want to give that to someone else. I can't help it. Listen to me, there's a war going on right now as we speak. We don't like to talk in these terms, but this is the truth. While we all sit right here and listen to this message, there is a spiritual war going on. Satan's waging a war against the world and against this church, and bodies are dropping left and right. Some of us act like we're riding around on a, a cruise ship when we should be on a battleship. We've got to get in the fight. There is a spiritual war going on right now. We've got to get in the fight. Building God's kingdom should become more important to us than building our own. So let me ask you, inside of your community and your personal life. Are you living mission-driven? Or are you selfishly motivated? Like, are, are the results of your decisions, Christ's name being magnified? Or is your own kingdom being established? Which one is it? Think about that. And this brings me to my last point, a unified family. We see that the, the early church was a unified family. I'll look at verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So listen, there's a huge misconception in the church today, especially in America. There's this misconception that I don't have to be a part of the church to get saved. I don't gotta go to church to get saved. I ain't gotta serve to get saved. I ain't gotta do all that and go to connect group to get saved. That's part right. To get saved, you don't need the church, right? You need you and Christ. You need to submit to him, put your faith in him. That's it. But let me tell you something. You can't look at me and say, hey, we wanna invite you to a barbecue. We really like you. But I don't like Lauren. She can't come, but you can come. You don't do that. That's the same thing that you're talking about here. The church is the bride of Christ, you have to, to want to be a part of the body. You have to be involved and connected to the church in order to have a relationship with Christ, okay? That's a huge misconception that you don't need the church to be saved. Listen, God's heart is for us to be one, okay? In, in John chapter 17, and this is a little before Jesus is going to the cross, he actually prays for us. He says a prayer, and I, I, I love this prayer. This is what he says. My prayer is not for them alone, them being the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and that's me, that's us. Well, what does he want? 
that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen, <laughs> Jesus prayed that we would be one like the Trinity. There's no more unification. There's nothing that's in deeper unification than the Trinity itself, okay? We were called to be a part of this one body. We were called to be a part of this one body. The enemy's scheme is to disunify the church. That's Satan's whole plan. You know why? Because he's scared to death of a unified church. Because the Bible said the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. And God's church is unified. We gotta be aware of Satan's scheme. And listen to me, family's messy. Trust me, I know. Mama, grandma, I'm sorry if you're listening, but it's true, all right? Family's messy, so what are, what are some of the messy things that disunify families and churches? I think about one, gossip. Listen, when we start spreading half-truths around, that hurts people. Gossip is damaging. It disunifies the church. Two, secondary doctrines. Listen to me. There's certain doctrines that we need to hold firm on, but I'm telling you right now, I refuse to argue with you about what I'm wearing in heaven. I refuse. You hear me? I heard someone say before, don't shout where God whispers. Don't let secondary doctrines disunify us. Number three, past history. Doesn't it matter to me who your husband dated in eighth grade? Let it go. Like, don't let past history cause disunity in the church. Four, race. Race is a big one. Race has always disunified us. Always. We've got to be able to look past things like race and move more into unification. And lastly, but most certainly not least, number five, politics. Like, I think about politics. My goodness, listen, I'm not fussing at you guys. Like, look, I, I hope you stand firm on what you believe. I hope you vote for what you believe. That's great. But don't wield it so dangerously that you're cutting people down with your political preferences. We're called to love people. Don't let things like this, this bring disunity into the church. And these are just a few. But let me tell you something. The church today is known far more for what it stands against than what it stands for. And that's sad. That's sad. And in order for us to get back to a place where we're known for what unifies us, which is Jesus, we're gonna have to start evaluating our personal lives. We're gonna have to start identifying the things that bring disunity into the church, and then we're gonna have to start addressing them. We're gonna have to start dealing with them in our personal lives to bring unity back to God's church. Now, when we talk about a unified family, and these are the last few things I'm gonna hit right here. When we talk about a unified family, I wanna tell you what it needs, what it does, and what it accomplishes, okay? So what we need for a unified family is for us to realize that we are incomplete without each other. I'm incomplete without you. I'm incomplete without you. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Listen, there, there's a lot of things that diversify us in here. 
Like we all have, like there's certain things that are different about us, but we've got one thing that trumps all of that that unifies us. It's the, the shared life that we have in Christ. We have all become a part of one body. Do you hear me? All right, listen to this. If, if someone becomes paralyzed from the waist down, then they lose a member of their body essentially, okay? And what happens then? Well, now that body can no longer perform a primary function it was designed to perform, like walking. So let me tell you, the, the church, when we bring disunity in here and we separate members of the body, it can no longer perform the primary functions God called it to perform. We're dead in the water. We need each other. We're incomplete without each other. I've been gifted in different ways than you have, so I need all of us to unify and come together so this body, this cell of God's church can be functioning and marching on like it's supposed to. Now let's look at B, what it does. Needs are met. Acts 2, verse 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. But wait, there's more. Acts chapter 4, verse 34 says, that there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Listen, you have much because your brother and sister has little. You have much because your brother and sister have little. God provides for others through the generosity of his people. All right? That is one of the ways that God meets needs for people. It's through you and your resources. And it's really not even your resources to begin with. The only reason we were given access to any of our resources is so we could steward them the way God planned for us to steward them. It's not even mine to begin with. But as a unified family, we were called to share in each other's burdens. We were called to share in each other's burdens. This means that I should sacrifice for your family the same way I would mine. Like, and, and listen, y'all, y'all probably think I'm getting a little serious here, but like it, this, this is true. Like I'm not being dramatic. This means that if I would pick up an extra shift at work to go meet a need for my children, that I should go pick up an extra shift at work to meet a need for your kids. You hear me? This means what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. And I know some of y'all have some really big boats and beach houses. You, you hear me? You know what I'm trying to tell you? But seriously though, if the church is a unified family, people will be cared for and Christ will be magnified through it. Look, in the secular world, that type of generosity is like unheard of, it's unknown. So whenever we begin to sacrifice in our own lives so that others around us will be cared for and needs will be met, people are stepping back and saying, what are they smoking? Like, something's not right here. What are they doing? And it makes them ask questions and then you get to share the gospel and then Christ is made known. Christ is made known. But listen, this also blesses you. When we practice generosity, it helps us experience a manifestation of the generosity we've been shown in Jesus. If I was ever generous before I got saved, I can almost assure you it was to elevate myself in some kind of way. It was to make me feel better about myself. But today, when I'm able to meet a need for someone, whenever I'm able to step into someone's life in that way, I'm just simply reminded of the fact that no matter what I could ever give, no matter how many times I can meet a need for someone, it will never equal out to be the God of the universe sending his only son, Jesus, to die on a cross for me to make a way for me to know God again. It will never equal that. And I'm reminded of it whenever I practice generosity, when needs are met within this family. Now, let's look at the very last thing, and I'm closing out here. What it accomplishes. Listen to me. It removes fear and it creates boldness for Christ. It removes fear 
and it creates boldness for Christ. The Christians in the book of Acts faced constant persecution, and before the early church actually gathered in Acts 2.42, the disciples were a little slow moving at being bold for Jesus. You hear me? Look, Judas betrayed him, Peter denied him, and Thomas doubted him. You hear me? But after Acts 2.42, we see a very different picture. We see a church that is united as a family and they are marching through not just Jerusalem, but they're marching through places like Ethiopia and the gospel is just exploding. It's spreading everywhere. The only thing that has changed is the church, the community of, of the church was established. They were a unified family and it began to remove fear from these Christians' lives and it began to replace it with a boldness. With a boldness, look. Do you want to be bold for Christ in these crazy times? Do you want to remove the fear in your life? Re-engaging deeper in the community and, and, and walking alongside a unified family of believers is the only way you do it. All right? When I felt the call to ministry, this may not seem like much to you, but look, I'm, I was the farthest thing from, from headed to ministry. It was the scariest thing that I'd ever experienced because I knew God was, was doing something in my life. I knew that he wanted this for me, but I didn't want it. I didn't want it, and I tried so hard to fight it. Like, I was fearful, and, and I didn't want to make the call, but listen to me. I was unified with people like Billy and Blake and Dustin. Like, I was unified with my church family. I was walking alongside these people, and when I sat down with them, and I said, man, I don't know what to do. Like, this thing is really wearing me. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to handle this. But I, I had a group of people that were there to push me, that were there to encourage me, that were there to make me feel like I could take on the world for Christ. And it's only because I was unified with those people that I stepped out and I joined a team of men that were doing ministry for Christ. The only reason I'm standing right here preaching to you right now is because I was walking alongside a unified group of people unified with my church family. So overall, what does the early church teach us about community? We should be devoted to the things of God. You need to make these a priority. The word of God, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. You need to make them a priority in your communal time and in your personal time. Two, we need to live mission-driven lives. There is a clear mission, all right? So you need to be building a good reputation and you need to let the, the beast out of the cage. You, you need an untamed zeal for Jesus. If you don't have it, you better refresh yourself with the gospel because everything about the gospel should excite you. It should make you wanna labor for Christ even more. And lastly, we've gotta be a unified family. We gotta get disunity out of here. In the words of Buck Benton, we gotta punt that thing on out of here, all right? No more disunity. No more disunity. Listen to me. If you're in here today and you'd say, I have a relationship with Jesus, then my challenge to you is simple. You need to engage deeper into community. You need to press into this family of believers. And if you're in here today and you say, I don't have a relationship with Christ, listen to me. My challenge to you is, is, is to, to join this family. Christ has made a way for you to be a part of this family. It's real simple. Just surrender yourself to him. Put your faith in him. You can't earn it. You cannot earn your way into this family. You hear me? If you would, bow your heads for me for just a second, please. And I just, I just want to tell you this. If you're in here today and you know you struggle with community, you know that you've fallen into isolation and you need someone to pray with you, you need somebody to walk through next steps with you, would you raise your hand? Just raise your hand for me and keep them high. Thank y'all. All right, and for the rest of us, if you're in here today, 
and you would say, I, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, but I want one. I want to belong to a family like that. Would you raise your hand, please? I just want to pray for you. And for the rest of us, God, I just, I pray that that we will begin to pursue you on a deeper level than we have. I pray that we would come to know you through community, God, that we would experience you through fellowship with one another. And I pray that we'd walk out of these doors today and we would live mission-driven lives. I pray that we would remember that we are your response to the brokenness in Tombs County. And it's all through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that I pray. Amen.